coming up on Technation, how big computers and big data can solve big problems. I speak with Todd Hutchinson, head of numerical weather prediction at the Weather Company, and Cameron Clayton from Watson Media and Weather. All weather is local, but to predict it takes global data. And what about the food that we eat? Where did it come from? I'll speak with Bridget McDermott, Vice President of IBM Food Trust. From one field to one processor to one supermarket, technology can keep tiny problems tiny. All this in our continuing coverage from the Consumer Electronics Show in Las Vegas on this week's Tech Nation. Let's take five with Moira Gunn. This is Five Minutes. Say 1492 to most Americans, and the most frequent response is that's the year Columbus discovered America. It used to be an automatic response for everyone, but as happens over time, we live and learn. It's a little difficult to assert that Columbus discovered a place where 60 million people were living. Granted, those 60 million people were stretched over North and South America, but they were there nonetheless. Frankly, there's a bit of good old-fashioned scientific argument over whether it might be as low as 30 million Native Americans and maybe as high as 120 million or so. But the population of San Francisco today doesn't even reach a million, and everybody knows we're here. So let's reframe that answer into 1492 was the year that Columbus thought he discovered America. Or possibly everyone in Europe who were in with the in-crowd discovered America, but that really isn't the point. What Columbus brought with him was pestilence. Pestilence sounds like what it means, fatal epidemic disease. And what might be considered a brush-off today was at least built up in the immune system of the Europeans. Over time, when they got off their boats, some 30 communicable diseases got off with them. And the Native Americans had no relevant immune resistance to speak of. In about a hundred years, it's estimated, again with some scientific differences, only 5% of the local population survived. That's right, fully 19 out of 20 Native Americans throughout North and South America fell victim to either pestilence or war. And given the technology of the times, communicable disease was by far the greater foe. The story might end there, but there's a study out of the journal Quaternary Science Reviews that proposes that with the decimation of all these Native Americans, their habitats were abandoned and their local lands returned to a natural state. Wild vegetation took over. And if you follow the logic of the paper's authors, a period of global cooling ensued. It's a scientific argument based on carefully collected data, and now the community of all scientists can jump right in and take a good look. The attractive premise is this. If the removal of humans can affect global cooling, why wouldn't the incredible expansion of humans affect global warming? 
Aside from this point, I've often remarked to people while we sat together in San Francisco that 200 years ago, there wasn't much of anything here. Below our feet was in all likelihood natural vegetation. Yes, the Spanish built its first tiny presidio in 1700, and some 50 years later, Mission San Francisco was founded. But all was pretty quiet until 1849, when the 49ers came in droves and split for the foothills and gold. That was enough to ignite the economy, and San Francisco has never looked back. We've kept building, people keep coming, and downtown continues to be built larger today. Homes, schools, businesses, and everything else that goes along with modern life. But what does it all do? It generates heat. Look out across the bay and you see Angel Island. A few buildings are left over from when it was an immigration center, and now what you see is green. So do the same for San Francisco. Picture it with its hills and valleys, waterfronts circling all three sides, none of the people or their buildings. It's only seven miles by seven miles, but picture it entirely green space. Clearly, it probably doesn't need a Golden Gate Bridge. I'm Moira Gunn. This is 5 Minutes. 5 Minutes is produced at the studios of KQED-FM in San Francisco. 5 Minutes is a production of Tech Nation Media. I'm Paul Lancourt. From San Francisco, I'm Moira Gunn, and this is Tech Nation. Today on Tech Nation, what it takes to predict the weather, how we're getting better at it, and what that means throughout the world. Later in the program, embedding trust up and down the food supply chain, from local growers and international foods to supermarket shelves. I'll speak with Bridget McDermott, Vice President of IBM Food Trust. All in our continuing coverage from the Consumer Electronics Show in Las Vegas, Nevada. It seems that every day we all talk about the weather. It might just be local, but it can also be a serious and impactful weather event somewhere in the world. My guests today are Todd Hutchinson, the Director of Numerical Weather Prediction at the Weather Company, and Cameron Clayton, the General Manager of Watson Media and Weather. Well, everybody's familiar with the Weather Channel and type weather.com into your computer or your smartphone saying, what's the weather, where is it? Is that you guys? Yes. <laughs> in <laughs> it a is word. Us. In a word, yes. Uh, we've been in the weather business for a really, really long time. We're actually the largest private uh, weather enterprise in the world. We employ more meteorologists than any other private company in the world. And we're one of the few private companies that actually does its own weather forecasting and augmenting uh, what we get from governments from around the world. And now you're an IBM company. We are. We've been an IBM company for three years. Uh, we got acquired three years ago and uh, thrilled to be an IBM company. It's had amazing benefits for us. Prior to that, we were mostly a U.S.-centric business. Now we're in uh, 168 countries uh, around the world, and it's just been amazing joining a trusted company like IBM. The relationships are incredible, and it's 
it's been amazing for the team. If we're in the business of weather reporting and weather prediction, it's data and computers. Well, hello, IBM. (laughs) This is actually a natural. Absolutely. One of the exciting things here is that at the weather company, we run our own weather prediction models. And we've been doing that for, oh, 15, 20 years now. And today we're looking towards the next generation of model that's really combining much larger data sources and much larger forecasting across the world. We are running weather models today globally that will run at three-kilometer resolution, and that goes all the way down to resolve features as as fine as thunderstorms. So it's really exciting to be able to put all this together and to utilize the IBM supercomputers that are available today to make this happen. Well, I have to say this show goes all over the world, not just on NPR, but on, you know, American Forces Radio and all of that. So they're all ears to that. But a lot of those people don't know how long a kilometer is. They think miles. How, how many miles is three kilometers? Well, three kilometers is about two miles. So what we're really doing is we're putting points on the Earth that are roughly two miles apart across much of the Earth. In the case of this model, we'll be covering most of the land areas of the world at about two miles across, three kilometers across, with points throughout. Uh, so it's fairly very fine resolution. Now, what data are you collecting every two miles all over the Earth? That's that's a lot of data and a lot of sources. Where are the sources coming from? Sure, it's, it, it is a lot of data. And uh, some of the keys here are that we collect data from both satellites, uh, radars, um, conventional observations such as weather balloons that float up through the atmosphere twice a day. Uh, and those, especially the, the satellite type of observations, are very high resolution, sometimes all the way down to two kilometers. Um, we are augmenting those data sets with our own data sets. One of them is kind of an exciting uh, source of data. It's actually pressure from your cell phone. And believe it or not, what? there's barometers <laughs> within your cell phone these days that are in there. And the reason that they're there is to help in estimating your elevation. If you're familiar with pressure of the atmosphere, it decreases as you rise uh, through with height. But the nice thing about pressure is it gives you a sense of what's going on in the atmosphere weather-wise. It's a key ingredient for forecasting the weather. And it's kind of a culmination of the weight of the atmosphere down at the Earth's surface. So it's a very valuable source for forecasting the weather if we can get a very large network of weather of uh, pressure observations across large areas. Well, I don't imagine you send uh, weather company employees every two miles <laughs> with with smartphones all over the planet. How do you do this? <laughs> yeah. Well, no, we're we're very excited to have um, have our own weather company app where if users choose to, they can contribute back to us the actual pressure from their cell phone. And um, by just using our app and choosing to contribute back, that can actually help improve the forecast. And it's really exciting because it's a rich data set in areas where our users are, especially outside the United States, where the data isn't typically as rich as it is in areas such as the U.S. I sort of think about like the digital divide. Most people don't realize there's been a meteorological equivalent, right, which is the United States, Canada, Japan, the U.K. have had really good pretty high resolution, you know, forecasting for quite a long time. Uh, But each country sort of does weather for their country. They don't typically do it outside of their country as much. The U.S. is really an exception uh, to that. And so it's historically been a collection of of models pulled together to cover the rest of the world. What, What we're now doing with Graph is bringing, you know, sort of the rest of the world up to 
close to the similar parity and quality that we've had here uh, in, in the Western uh, nations. And the implications of that are really pretty profound, right? We don't even know what they will all be. And GRAF is G-R-A-F, the IBM Global High Resolution Atmospheric Forecasting System. How come <laughs> H, the H and High didn't get a... <laughs> no, no, that's, uh, that's over in branding. No, yeah. we won't. But GRAF is good. GRAF is really great. GRAF we can, graph we can use. <laughs> we can work with that. We can work with that. And I, I think it's so important to imagine this. Now we have the whole Earth, and now we're getting... Uh, so many, so many sensor readings on the ground, but also goes up through the atmosphere. And we never really thought about the fact that if you lived in a fairly remote area or a country that just didn't have that information, you weren't going to get that information for yourselves. You didn't know it. Right, right. One of the things I, I explain to people is Google has done a really incredible job with Google Maps of mapping the Earth, right? It's a big, hard problem and they're doing an incredible job. But if you think about the atmosphere for a minute and trying to map the atmosphere, that's what the weather company does. We map the atmosphere just like Google maps the, the earth. Just think about that for a minute. The atmosphere is constantly moving and it's basically at, at every location, at every latitude and longitude, it's a, sort of a cone going up 62 miles to space. So basically from sea level to 62 miles, you've got to figure out what's happening in the atmosphere, a two-mile grid over the entire Earth. And it's dynamic. And, that, and it's crazy dynamic. And that just basically gets you the observation, right? That's what's happening right now. Then you've got to predict the future from there, right? So you're predicting the future off a moving... And fast to be relevant. It and super fast you to know, be relevant. You, you don't care 48 hours from now if it takes you two weeks to predict it. No, that's right. No, it's that's just right. not relevant that's information right. it just, anymore. It's just it's not relevant anymore. And so when you start thinking about it like that, it really is astounding how, you know, compute, new data, and new science have sort of come together. We talked about with uh, Ed Bastian at Delta, who's the CEO of Delta. Uh, and what this sort of means for Delta is, you know, if you're flying in a plane, you will, we've all experienced this. The pilot comes on as you're starting to feel the jitters of turbulence. And the pilot says, oh, I'm going to change to 28,000 feet so we can find some calm air, right? Well, it usually doesn't work the first time, the second time. You know, you have a, a fairly turbulent uh, flight. What we'll be able to do with Graph is an hour into the future, we'll be able to predict exactly where the plane, what altitude the plane should be flying through the atmosphere. And so we hope, we aspire that with graph, you shouldn't uh, experience turbulence the way you do uh, today. And you, you think about that from a safety point of view, from a cost savings point of view, from a fear of flying uh, point of view for, for some people, uh, it's, it's pretty big, 50,000 flights a day adds up really, really quickly. And the flights do remind me, um, we were just uh, talking about comparing this to the, the phones on the ground to to Google Maps, you know, which right. we sometimes jokingly refer to as Google Dirt. It's like whatever <laughs> the dirt is, it knows where it is. Mm -hmm. You know, hurricanes form over the oceans. <laughs> right. You don't have people in fishing boats every two miles, right, with right. cell phones snowing. It's like, how do you get the data over the oceans? 
Right. And and really the way that that happens is through satellites. And satellite technology today has really advanced. In fact, uh, recently in the past year, NOAA, they've put up a satellite, uh, the latest generation of satellite that's actually observing the Earth all the way down to one kilometer uh, across the western half of the Western Hemisphere, and we can get really fine resolution from that. Now, satellites have been around a long time, and that's the way that we've seen uh, features such as hurricanes out over the Atlantic. And by getting to finer and finer detail with these new satellites, assimilating that data into our weather models, the one we're talking about here, we can get to the scale where we can actually see the fine-scale structure in the storm and have a better chance at forecasting it, not just the large-scale storm itself, but the actual rain bands and the fine-scale rain bands within it, and, ex- and more closely where those strong winds will occur. You know, usually in San Francisco, we're always worried about earthquakes. You know, that's the, <laughs> not that we worry. We just know it's there. It's sort of like a fun ride, but you didn't leave home. Right. You know, so it's really, that's serious, very serious stuff. But what happened to us this year with the California fires, in particular, one in particular, is we had such significant uh, air quality, bad air quality, that they had to shut down uh, many places in the in the whole San Francisco Bay Area. You know, just particulates uh, that were unheard of or unseen. And now we're talking about gee, with with climate changes, that we may be looking at far more of these fires and far more of this impact on us. And we were, the fire wasn't even where we were; it just happened to be north of us. And the winds went the wrong way, went out to sea and came in through the Golden Gate Mm -hmm. and blanketed the entire area. Are those the kinds of things that you can even predict or are those too new, these phenomenon too new? Well, it's it's interesting because the way that we would um, actually be able to give some information about that is through what we would call post-processing of the model, where if we indicate that there's a fire and can understand how much particulate matter is coming from that fire, perhaps through satellite data, we can then apply the atmospheric conditions that would transport that uh, smoke and, and particulate matter towards a given direction, and sometimes even understand what height of the atmosphere it will be. And that's how we would really use a weather model to help um, help um, understand the, uh, where the, that particulate so, matter is going to go. So it'll be some time before we can get that. Cl- We're still learning, in a sense. Absolutely. There's, yeah, and we always will be, but for sure, there's uh, lots of games always being made. Always touch for scientists. <laughs> like Definitely. A good example is, uh, you know, the eruption that happened in Iceland with the volcanic eruption, right, put ash into the up into the atmosphere. Uh, and we work with almost all the major commercial airlines. They can't fly through uh, volcanic ash uh, for hopefully obvious reasons. Uh, and so they get to do it once. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, once and, and buy a new plane. Uh, and so we work worked on that extensively for a long time. It erupted multiple times over a long, long period of time, uh, added about four hours to your trip from, you know, uh, East coast, uh, to Europe to fly around it. Uh, but it is weather models that are showing how the air is moving through the atmosphere. Right. And we, we have that sort of mapped, uh, today. And so as fires, you know, most people don't realize, but the most dangerous air on earth was in San Francisco those two days. Really? Yeah. 
It was it was it was mud. Very we wore our very masks bad. if you if you had to go out. Right. And interesting about that is not being used to anything like this. Not very cold, so you're not sealing right. up your house permanently. It's like how did this stuff get into your house? You know, it's everywhere. And it was just everywhere, and it was just debilitating. And you don't have to experience that much. People. You know, in their 90s, were saying they lived there their entire lives and never seen anything like that. And it can happen almost anywhere to any set of people. And the more we know about it, obviously, obviously the better. Now, one thing I want to talk about is like we're great for, you know, doing models and getting answers and all. It doesn't do any good if it doesn't get to anybody. <laughs> yeah, <that's right. laughs> what kind of media is produced uh, as a result of all of this work? I'm going to answer that question in probably a strange way, which is the mission of the weather company. The mission of the weather company is actually to help people make better decisions. Uh, And it's right – what you asked is at the heart of that, right? Because uh, there's so many examples that I've lived through personally uh, leading the, the weather company over time where we have had a perfect forecast, like a really fantastic, the, the, the meteorology team did an incredible job two or three days in advance of, of an event. Uh, and then people made really bad decisions, whether it was government leaders, military leaders, it, it goes, the list is long. A bunch of individuals. People, right? Of all times. It, personally, you make a bad decision about how traffic's going to impact your commute. It doesn't matter what it is, right? Um, uh, and... So we've sort of changed from trying to solely have the world's best weather forecast from an accuracy point of view and turn that into how do we help you make the best decision that you're looking to make in your life? Now, sometimes those decisions are governmental at the highest levels. Uh, sometimes they're r- local government, right, closing schools, you know, ice, de-icing roads. Sometimes they're personal. Do I need an umbrella? Do I need, you know? Is football practice going to be canceled today, whatever the case may be? And that's our whole mission is, is to take you know, this incredible science, this incredible data, this incredible computing and turn that into recommendations of decisions. And so then we distribute those through every channel you can imagine. <laughs> Everything that we can, we try to distribute it, whether it's a podcast like this or whether it's our mobile apps or whether it's our websites or whether it's uh, packaging it for our television broadcasters or whether We're it's... also radio. Podcasts is the follow-on. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And, and radio and you, know, you name it, right? Uh, if, you, if you see weather uh, somewhere, chances are uh, very good chance it's coming from us. Um, but we want to help translate that for people into better decisions. Now, Todd, tell us about this model that predicts weather, this high-resolution model. How does it really work? What do you do? Sure. Um, So we've – let's see. We're running a a computer weather model that has been developed by the National Center for Atmospheric Research over the past five years or so. Uh, It's called NCAR for people who know the the government terms. Exactly. NCAR in Boulder, Colorado. And uh, they're kind of the – the leaders in uh, developing many of these weather prediction models. We work closely with them and use their technology to apply it ourselves. This model that we're using right now, called the Model for Prediction Across Scales, is a model that it's a global weather model. And it is uh, used for uh, 
predicting weather across the world, uh, it has a couple great features that haven't been used in, in models up until now. Um, and one is that it's actually variable resolution. So we talked earlier about how the model will forecast down to roughly three kilometers or two miles. Well, that's actually only going to happen where it's important. And over the continental areas of the world, uh, where people live, we'll be running the model at at those resolutions, two to th- two, cl- two miles, three kilometers, the rest of the world will actually be running it at 15 kilometers or so. And one of the reasons for doing that is to focus our resources onto those areas that are most important. Um, and by doing so, we can actually save computing resources and maximize our, our compu- uh, the, the, the ability of our computer to forecast the weather. We'll be running this model out for the day ahead. We're trying to make a forecast for the day ahead. We're not actually at this time trying to make a 10-day forecast like some of the other models, but we're looking at whether there's going to be a thunderstorm this afternoon or whether or not you're going to get snow in a few hours. And the reason for that is because globally, that's re- that problem ha- really hasn't been solved. We want to update this model very frequently, every hour, to produce those forecasts. Typically, we've been used to such forecast capability in the United States, other parts of the world, such as Western Europe and Japan, but the rest of the world really hasn't had such a capability up to this point. And that's our focus. So we want to be able to forecast the weather similar in areas such as Africa as we can in areas such as the United States. And so that's pretty exciting, I think. Well, we're used to that here. It's like who thought that it wasn't everywhere? And it becomes especially critical when you're getting towards forecasting thunderstorms and other convective features like that that are really um, uh, really somewhat chaotic in the atmosphere and difficult to um, predict at times. And so wherever you are in the world, if you have a smartphone, <laughs> iPhone or Android, and you want to participate and contribute to this, you go to weather.com. Uh, That's right. Go to weather.com or your cell phone app, the Weather Company app, and that's really where it would be uh, uh, sent through. And you'll be a a citizen... uh, Meteorologist. Meteorologist. (laughs) Contributor. I'm all over it. I'm all over it. Humans solving solving problems for themselves. This is a good idea. Well, I think it's a a great way to help your neighbor, right? You opt in to, to share your pressure data with us and you help your neighbors, you know, get a better answer. And the more people that do it, the better answer we all have. And, you know, that's what community is really all about. So I'm in San Francisco, and you're collecting as I go around town and record at KQED and all that. Then I get in a plane and I fly to Fiji. Am I, do I send in data from Fiji as well? Yes. 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 Oh, and I guess from the airplane, I have to turn it off. <laughs> all right. All right. Yeah. It's not going to make that much of a difference. So. Actually, you know, you bring up an interesting point with the airplane because one of the things with the pressure sensor is that um, pressure varies very rapidly with height. So if somebody were using their cell phone in a tall building and riding up in an elevator, that would actually send the same, same signal as if a tornado were approaching. So... It's, you notice that right it's away. Like, wow, what's going on here? And so we really have to be careful with this data and make sure that we don't use it in the wrong way meteorologically. Because, what, well, the way that we handle that is that we're very interested in the change in pressure over time, not the abs- not necessarily the absolute pressure that the phone is sensing. But if we can understand how the pressure is changing over time, and we can understand that a cell phone is still is not moving, then we really can get a really valuable signal from that and help us with the weather forecast. 
We'll call that the Manhattan effect. Where everybody goes to work in the morning and they all go up the So don't listen to them. No, no, no. Later on. We'll later try not on. to predict tornadoes in Manhattan in those cases. So. <laughs> would be very good. Gentlemen, thank you so much. You're always welcome on Tech Nation. Hope you come back and see us again. Thank Great. you so much thank for having us. Thank you very us. much. My guests today are Cameron Clayton, the general manager of Watson Media and Weather, and Todd Hutchinson, the director of numerical weather prediction at The Weather Company. More information is available at weather.com. I'm Moira Gunn. You're listening to Tech Nation. Podcasts of Tech Nation are available at NPR One, iTunes, Stitcher, and other podcast syndication outlets. Coming up in the second half of our show, we talk about trusting the integrity of the food that we eat and how technology can play a significant role. My guest will be Bridget McDermott, Vice President of IBM Food Trust. Stay with us. Listening to Tech Nation. The food that we eat travels to us through many hands, whether that be local growers or producers from across the country or around the world. So exactly the path taken by the food that reaches our plates is hard to trace. With technology, that all may change. Bridget McDermott is the vice president of IBM Food Trust. Bridget, welcome to Tech Nation. Thank you very much. Happy to be here. I have to say, Everybody eats food, and we most of the time don't know where it came from. Sometimes we think we know where it came from, but I don't know if you know this, but there is more organic food sold globally than grown. What? <laughs> yeah. Is this Believe a loaves and fishes number? What are you Believe talking about? Believe it or about? not, there's <laughs> fraud happening in the organic market. So even when we think we're eating organic food, when we think we know where something's coming from, and what we, it is. And what it is. And what's in it or on it. We don't. Not with certitude. Not with confidence. And this is now truly a global market when it comes to food. Like never before in the history of the world, food is truly global. It, yes, people, some people try very hard to eat locally. But 
I would guess that most of the people who are listening to this had a food from outside of their country at some point in the last 24 hours. Well, almost all the apple juice in the United States is grown in China. Exactly. And depending on what month of the year it is, your country might not be producing really any food. And so if you're eating fresh food during the winter, you're probably eating international produce. Well, I have to say that a lot of people can say there ought to be a law or uh, how do we regulate this or what kind of labels can we put on it. Uh, You're talking more about a technological solution at a much deeper level, actually. What we're talking about is saying, hey, actually, everybody in the food ecosystem wants to do the right thing. They generally want to provide the kind of transparency that makes the system more efficient, that reduces the number of errors, that it reduces the amount of fraud, that reduces the number of food safety incidents. The issue is that prior to now, it's been very difficult to share that information while retaining control over the information, right? To do the right thing for the industry while also doing the right thing for your business. What's changed is blockchain. And while most people now consider blockchain as something to do with cryptocurrency, that's actually just one use case out of what could be millions of different use cases. And I'm personally a lot more excited about blockchain's potential to change a lot of other industries, starting with food. The ability to impact the supply chain by introducing trust is phenomenal. You've made a really good point here just from the start. Blockchain can give you trust in the data that it has. Let's go there. Why is that? What does it do? Well, let me, usually when somebody asks that question, they get a response about data being hashed and put into a chain and being immutable. Yeah, things are pointed at each other and multiple copies everywhere. Let's let's take a step back from that and just answer what is the impact of using blockchain? So I'm a big New York Times crossword puzzle solver. And on Sundays, I do the New York Times crossword puzzle with my friend David. So David and I will sit down and we'll ask each other clues. What's oh, a he four- has one and you have one. <laughs> well, we sort of go back and forth. And I'll say, like, what's the four-letter word for um, a bright, shiny object in the sky? And he could say star or moon or nova. But before we write it down, he and I need to agree on what we're putting in. Oh. Now. One crossword puzzle, one pin. Exactly. So we're agreeing. Let's say we agree it's star. But maybe I think it's star and David doesn't. But he agrees. Okay, we'll use yours. We aren't sure it's right, but we're sure that we, as the two players, have agreed that that's the information that we're using. In blockchain... That's really what consensus is. You're agreeing that this is the information that you're going to act on. The second thing is when you do a crossword puzzle, you can either do it in pen or you can do it in pencil. And I don't know if you've ever tried to impress anyone by doing the New York Times Sunday crossword puzzle in pencil, but it is impossible. Your own mother will look at you and say, "Mm, nice. For some reason, when people feel like the information is changeable, They feel like your accomplishment is lesser, that they can trust that you did it honestly, not at all, that it is not something verifiable. It's not something, it's not an achievement. You say that was the first time you wrote it or what it is. But in the case of But if you write it in pen. If it turned out to be moon, 
then what happens? Then you draw a little line through the star and you write moon in small letters up at the top. But because people can see that you changed it, they know the history of the data. They know with confidence that when they see data that is unchanged, that it has never been changed. And when they see data that has been changed, that it was different at one time. And so people trust, have confidence in the data because they know the history of the data, because they know for, for certain where it has been. What has okay, happened to it? so let's start in the field. And okay, I'm growing something from a seed. Mm-hmm. Do we have to start back with the seeds? Well, so when we think about adding transparency to the food ecosystem, there is sort of the ultimate nirvana, right? Where we have complete and utter information, not just from the farm, but from what I call pre-farm, which is antibiotics and seeds and you know varietals and all of that stuff, all the way to the consumer. We don't need to start with nirvana, right? Uh, That can be a a destination. What we can start with is what do we have now? And there's a tremendous amount of information that is actually available now and being underutilized. So the technology that is probably most used in the food ecosystem for storing data is something called a pencil and paper. And so what people do is they write down this is the time that this shipment left, or this is the time that this shipment arrived, right? And it's all captured on a piece of paper and put in a file cabinet and pretty much useless because you can't integrate it with all of the other sources of information. And even when people make that shift from pen and paper to something digital, often it's something like an Excel spreadsheet where the data is still siloed within a particular organization, but what, So what we're talking about is taking the information and moving it from where it is now on that piece of paper or in that Excel spreadsheet and putting it on a blockchain-enabled, in a blockchain-enabled solution. And what that means is you as the owner of the data now have the ability to easily share that with those that you want to share it with. So you can permission that data for everyone in your supply chain to see or a certain number of your business partners to see. So I'm a very trustworthy producer of lettuce in Watsonville, California, Mm -hmm. of which there are lots of trustworthy producers, but let's say I am one. Yes. And I'm saying, okay, and and that's a crop that you keep growing and you Mm -hmm. you do a number of growing seasons a year, many of them, that you pack up so many bushels mm-hmm. and you send it to the Safeway Distribution Center over in Fremont, California. Mm-hmm. And so you create a record that said, on this day, yep. I did this mm-hmm. and I sent it to this Safeway. Right. And this is a record that for the people that you give permission to can look and say, yep, that happened. Right. And so you want that to go to Safeway, but you don't want that information to go to Walmart. And Walmart doesn't want that information to go uh, sorry, Safeway doesn't want that information to go to Walmart. And why not? Well, if you have the ability to look at all of your competitors' information on uh, what they are buying and what they are selling, you could be much more informed in terms of demand management, in terms of pricing, in terms of all sorts of things that would give you a huge competitive advantage. And so that has been what has held people back because it's not like right now traceability solutions don't exist. It's just that Walmart has a traceability solution. 
Kroger has a traceability solution. Each and every retailer has one. And so the poor farmer who's working with multiple retailers has to put things into all of the different systems, which means the people put in minimum amounts, right, and don't share, and they aren't necessarily getting information back. And so what the blockchain does is say, look, you know, at least as enabled by IBM Food Trust, is you own the data that you have. And you can set permissions on who sees it. And you can decide what the information is that is going to be helpful to your business partners. What is the information that's going to give a return on investment to you for sharing it? And so you have the opportunity to share whatever it is you want to share. And your business partners can share information back in return. So if you as the farmer have information on, you know, what time this was harvested and what time it left your farm and what the temperature was and you get back from a retailer what time it sold and you get from some of your other folks in between what temperature it was maintained at or what time it arrived at the distribution center and what time it left. All of this allows you to start thinking about your business not as just I'm a farmer, but I'm a provider of this food to the end consumer, and this is everything that goes into that food being provided. You can make smarter decisions because you have better information. Now, let me get this straight. IBM has developed you know, the basic technology of blockchain, and it has developed an application on top of that called the IBM Food Trust. Now, is IBM enabling people to enter data that is sort of held in the cloud by IBM. Is so, that, so is that where we're going with this? So, so what we've done with IBM Blockchain Platform is we took blockchain, which was um, invented outside of IBM by people um, initially for cryptocurrency, and we said, you know what, this is a phenomenal approach, a phenomenal innovation. Um, And it allows you to introduce trust and to remove inefficiencies from markets. And so we want to help, we want to both build solutions leveraging blockchain and help others build blockchain solutions. So we build IBM blockchain platform running on top of IBM cloud that says, okay, here is your ability to easily put things onto a secure blockchain that is scalable, reliable, you know, all of those other things. So the full stack underneath the blockchain is also trusted. So we have that. Then on top of that, we said, look, there are actual business problems that we want to solve. The goal is not just to store information on a blockchain, right? The goal is to solve real business problems. And we started working with Walmart a couple of years ago on supply chain and food safety because of the collaborative nature of food safety became a very easy first choice, right? Nobody wins when there's a food safety incident. If if there's a problem with brand A peanut butter, it's not like everybody goes and buys brand B peanut butter. Everybody goes and has a tuna fish sandwich, right? So the whole peanut butter market has a problem. And so what what we did was working with them, we said, okay, What are the problems that we want to solve if we want transparency across the food ecosystem? And how might we initially use that to address some food safety incidents, but build it so that over time it can also be used for a whole bunch of other supply chain issues? So Walmart Mm -hmm. is huge being supplied by so many vendors, thousands of vendors. Mm -hmm. They want to be able to go back and say, exactly where did we get this? Right. And it wasn't just peanut butter. It was it was just this the this shipment on this date arriving here went to these WalMarts. Went they need to be able to trace that all back. Right. So 
the origin of of what may have been the problem could be traced. So it, that's exactly it. When we started with Walmart, we did our initial pilot, um, and one of the foods that we um, used was sliced mangoes. And Walmart, who's very good at this, did an initial trace with their current system of here's a pack of mangoes. Where did it come from? It took them six days, 18 hours, and 26 minutes. And as I said, they're good at it. But you imagine if there's an incident, that's a week where you either have to pull all the mangoes off your shelves or risk the health of your customers. And if you pull it off, you're going to waste that food. What happened when we did the pilot um, with our system, we were able to do that in 2.2 seconds. So you're, you're talking about going from a week to understanding where something came from to seconds. This kind of transformation means you go from risking people's health or wasting food to being able to say, we need to get rid of these 13 cases of mangoes and knowing that those 13 cases were actually at risk. And sometimes it's not the food. You can take, we'll take the peanut butter example. Mm-hmm. Um, you have suppliers of peanuts from farm A and suppliers of peanuts from farm B. And um, somehow portions of each ended up being the problem peanuts, peanut butter. It could be the packaging. Right. So um, in the in the mango example, we actually had at least six different steps in the process, right? And in looking at it, you don't just want to know what farm did it come from. You want to know each and every step along the way because you want to make sure that you catch it at the right point, not at just any point. It's very interesting about Walmart because they've made such huge changes that impact the world. I don't know if you're familiar with the Walmart green card, uh, but they went to uh, China where they have huge vendors providing them toys, all kinds of manufacturing. And they said, well, you better get up to a green light. If you're down at a red light or a yellow light, better get up to a green light or we're not going to buy from you, which is strikes fear in the heart of any manufacturer. And they said, okay, you can't have big boxes if you have small items. You have to compact them for transportation. They went through a whole series of things they had to do. It happened just within months that they changed the imprint, the sustainable and and green imprint of what was being shipped to them from overseas just because they were were Walmart, the largest private corporation in in the United States. So in 2006, there was an incident with spinach. And all of the spinach was pulled basically from every store in the United States. And this was an E. coli It was an outbreak. E. coli out- outbreak. After two weeks, it was traced to one farm, one shipment, one day. So it turns out that the impact on the spinach market of that two-week delay where people, uh, two-week two period where people felt like they couldn't eat spinach with confidence took the spinach farmers six to seven years to recover from. So for over six years, spinach farmers across the United States, across the globe, were punished by one farm's issue with dirty water. And the health of the American population suffered because spinach is actually pretty good for you. But so that was in 2006. Think back, 2006, we're like pre-smartphone. It's a long time ago. There's been huge technology innovation since 2006. So... You would assume that 
this kind of thing couldn't happen again. And yet this spring, we saw again with leafy greens, romaine, where all of the romaine had, had, had to be pulled, where people weren't confident eating a Caesar salad or anything. An issue from the government. If you have romaine in your refrigerator, pull it, throw it away. Because they knew it came from Yuma, which not that hard. Most spinach at that growing time comes from Yuma. But they didn't have the information on, you know, specifically what it was and, and being able to identify that. So all of a sudden, we have a repeat of what we had in 2006, in 2018. And so back to your comment on Walmart being proactive, following that, Walmart reached out to its suppliers and said, look, there's a problem. You know, it's been 12 years and we still have the same issue with incidents in leafy greens. And we don't want to risk the health of our consumers and we don't want to waste food. And so we are asking all of our suppliers, all of our leafy green suppliers to put their information on IBM Food Trust so that we can more proactively address this information. The thing, though, that we're also looking at doing is you don't want people to do a solution like this because they're told to, right? We are talking about something that removes inefficiencies from the market, that removes inefficiencies from the, the supply chain. The potential for everyone to see value, for everyone to see ROI is there. And so the goal in building this solution is to ensure that it's not just concentrated in one place where one segment of the market sees benefit. Everyone who participates, the farmers, the, uh, sh- the logistics companies, the manufacturing companies, all of these companies should find value in participating, in providing the information to their business partners, and in receiving information in return from their business partners. In terms of the IBM Food Trust, is it global? Because the, f- the, food, the food supply chain is global. Absolutely. It, my view, because people ask me, oh, can I, you know, get the IBM Food Trust for my country or for my um, segment of the market, my meat or my pro? Right now, one of the biggest problems we have are the silos that are created by different companies owning different parts of the data. To replace that with new silos based on geography or segment doesn't really buy us anything. What we want is one solution complete visibility across the globe as to what's going on. Now, having said that, I've been in technology a long time, and I've never seen one solution that everybody in an industry uses. And so our approach on that has been, well, let's architect it from the beginning for interoperability and standards. And so when inevitably there are other companies that are on this, we can make sure that we as the companies offering these solutions are able to exchange information while still maintaining the data rights that the data owners have, right? And so what we can build is an industry set of solutions that provide that kind of functionality in a trusted manner. Intertrustability. We're all over it. (laughs) Perfect. (laughs) Whatever technologies that we are conceiving now, there are going to be other ones that have other advantages that we haven't even thought of yet. It's a huge architectural challenge to design it for 
both business and technology interoperability. Everybody thinks about how do I make something technologically interoperable? Oh, okay, we'll, we'll all build it on Hyperledger or we'll all, you know. What, but with blockchain, you're not just talking about the interoperability of technology. You're talking about the interoperability of business logic as well. And so one of the things that's fundamentally important when you build a blockchain-enabled solution is ensuring that you have a governance model that aligns with the value of the members of your ecosystem. So for IBM Food Trust, for example, we have decided that with the help of many of our early adopters, that whoever owns the data prior to it going on the blockchain, they own the data once it's on the blockchain. But there's nothing inherent in blockchain that says that you own your data. Somebody could build a blockchain system and say, you know, part of the cost of using it is I'm taking ownership of what you're building. Now, I, I don't think a lot of people would maybe put their information on that, but the interoperability of the governance model is critical because if you have two systems that have two different governance models, you could be used to one where you have ownership of your data and not realize when you interoperate with another one that you are effectively ceding ownership of your, your data. So many times you can go into a store and they have in the freezer section, they have appetizers and whole meals and they don't come from the United States. They come from other places in the world and they're really nifty, you know, you know, so you really like this. And they're also processed food in the sense that they had to be assembled. Do you anticipate at some point that every step of the way back to growing, you would be able to, to trace any particular package? So um, Nestle actually did a pilot with us earlier um, that they've talked about publicly where they put baby food with multiple ingredients onto the blockchain. And, you know, I think a lot of people care quite a bit about what's in their baby food and what it, where it comes from. And so I think it's a perfect example to illustrate that this isn't just about saying, hey, where does this head of lettuce come from? But it can say, okay, where do the peas and carrots that come from here? Where do the, you know, sweet potato and mango come from? Or as your kids get older, where does the pizza come from? Not just the bread, not just the tomato sauce, not just the pepperoni. You know, all of those things have very complex supply chains. Some of them can be local. Some of them can be uh, international. Can all of it coming together? And if you want to really understand the food, you need to understand each and every part of it. But at the end of the day, it's just about walking it back step by step. And the way to do that is to have the trusted data and put it together in a solution that, that allows you to access that information. And like anything else, you're not going to be looking this up every day. <laughs> you got a lot in your life. <laughs> so different people will use the information is what we're seeing in different ways. And so within a company, the food safety team might use some of the data. The supply chain team might use some of the data. The marketing team might use some of the data. Now, obviously, again, they're only using the data that they've been permissioned to see by their business partners. But the consumers also don't need to see everything. In fact, it would potentially be overwhelming to people to see everything. What the consumers want is not data. The consumers want information or insight. And so how do you take that information and say, 
because of the information we have here, I can tell you for a fact that this particular item is organic, that this particular item is allergen-free, that this particular item is not fraudulent, that the whiskey or the olive oil has not been changed and it's just another liquid that looks like whiskey or olive oil, right? There are all sorts of things that you can do to provide that information to consumers in a way that becomes very valuable without overwhelming people with raw data. And that's the layers of trust that we're talking about. Mm-hmm. You say, you look at your bank and you say, that's how much money I have in my account. And you don't have to go down through every step of the bank and where the money is and what's been accounted for and are they solvent. A whole lot of other trust environments have ensured that for you, if you will. So what you're saying, if we can get to a certain point, then you as the consumer can know that it's trustworthy. It's also an opportunity, I think, to improve the communication between the consumer and the food suppliers. Even for people who don't provide a lot of information to companies they work with, when given the opportunity to um, to, to receive a text that says, hey, that head of romaine that you bought is at risk for E. coli, please throw it away and we've already credited your account for the money. That's a much better solution than watching the six o'clock news, which I don't know that anyone's watching the six <laughs> yeah. o'clock news anymore. And, and but everyone, it's, on, it's everywhere. It's on, uh, right. on the internet. Exactly. Yeah. And people not being sure whether they're, you know, is it just bagged lettuce? Is it hellheads? Is it hearts? Like what part is it? I don't know. Just I'll throw it away to be confident. So instead getting that piece of information proactively from the retailer or the manufacturer, that's real value. Because that's taking the problem away from me and solving it for me as the consumer. Well, Bridget, this has been very informative. I hope you come back and tell us more stories as you develop the IBM Food Trust. It's been a real pleasure. And uh, we're clearly pretty passionate about helping to transform the food ecosystem, providing that transparency and value for everyone. So happy to talk about it. Bridget McDermott is the vice president of IBM Food Trust. More information is available at ibm.com slash food. That's ibm.com slash food. From the Consumer Electronics Show, CES 2019 in Las Vegas, Nevada. For Tech Nation, I'm Moira Gunn. Tech Nation and its regular segment, Biotech Nation, are produced at the studios of KQED-FM in San Francisco. Executive producer is Matt Gardner. The director of technical production is Monte Carlos. And audio engineers include Howard Gelman, Seal Muller, and Larry Upton. Our theme music was composed by Ann Noctrieb Zessiger and Robert Powell, with title creation provided by NameLab Incorporated of San Francisco. Program information and Internet audio is available on the web at technation.com. Tech Nation and Biotech Nation are productions of Tech Nation Media. I'm Paul Lancourt.